Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We're going to look at a passage tonight in John and uh, kind of closing out this series on questions with a question that I hear a lot, and I think we all feel, myself included, uh, which is, uh, Peter says in Acts 4, by no other name will people be saved other than the name of Christ Jesus. Uh, and this is that question of, um, why only Jesus? One of the uh, tenets of the Reformation, one of the things the Reformed faith hangs on is what's called sola Christos, and Christ alone uh, are we saved. And that can be a troubling point to consider. So I'm going to read some passages from John 14, and then we're going to talk about it tonight, um, and talk about it maybe a different way than you've considered it. So here is the word of the Lord. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus is addressing the disciples this is, um, uh, on the night before he's arrested. So he tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, uh, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am you may be also and you may know the way to where I'm going. And this is where we're going to kind of talk. Thomas said to him, Thomas we learned about last week, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip responds to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider these words, we ask that you would be with us. Um, I pray that we would be able to consider what it means that a 30-year-old Jewish guy 2,000 years ago said, I am the Father and the Father is in me. And uh, that's a profound and confusing statement, dear God. But I pray that as we consider it, we would find um, that there is hope, uh, that things will be well, because that is true. So be with us, dear God, as we consider your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, as I thought about this passage, uh, I thought about, I think comedians are like the prophets of today. I think they tell us about our hearts more authentically than maybe, uh, a lot of other artists do at this point. And I thought about Louis CK and the way he talks about cell phones. I referenced this last quarter, but there's a different aspect of what he talks about. If y'all are familiar with the comedian Louis CK, um, one of the worst feelings in the world, this is not him, this is me reflecting before I get into him, uh, is, I know everybody experiences this, is to text, to email, uh, to Snapchat someone and not get a response. That is the ultimate you don't matter as a person, right? And the worst, for me at least, is the Facebook chat where you know they're online and you can see that they got the message and as soon as they get the message, they go offline. 
right? That is the ultimate, you are an illegitimate human, you know, and not worthy of dignifying respect. And we all have that sinking feeling because what it says, right, is you don't matter. I don't matter. And this is what Louis C.K. says about kind of social media. He says, sometimes when things clear away and you're not watching anything, and you're in your car and you start going, oh no, here it comes, that feeling that I'm alone. And he means like alone, alone in life. And it starts to visit on you just this sadness. Life is tremendously sad just by being in it. And he said, that's why we text and drive. I look around, pretty much 100% of the people driving or texting, and we're killing. Everybody's murdering each other with their cars. But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's too hard. And so I go, this is him. And so I go, oh, I'm getting sad. I've got to get the phone and write hi to like 50 people. <laughs> and um, I, think he, I think he says something that we're afraid to say that we know is true. If we explored that alone moment too long, we would find out it's true, which is we want to know and are not sure if we matter. And and mattering is an interpersonal thing. It's not just that we matter, it's do I matter to someone. And that's the reason we have to text, and that's the reason we have to Snapchat, and that's the reason we have to connect with people. And that's the reason in the most sinking and the hardest moments, we immediately go to social media. This is not all bad. It actually tells us about ourselves. And that's why we need someone to respond, is because it says we matter. If nothing else, I matter. And what's interesting is mattering to somebody is more important than even being who we are. We've got to matter to somebody. And so how many of us have abandoned this person that I am, who I am, who I was, in order to simply matter to another person or to another group? We've said things maybe we wouldn't have normally said because the context required in order to matter to these people, I had to speak this way. Maybe you've done things. You thought, I I was never the kind of person that did these things. But the reason you did it is because you had to matter to these people. This is, this is why pledges endure hell week. It is so that they will matter. They go through terrible things so that they will matter, so that a group of people will recognize them. And so we're, we're quite literally, so you can't, Louis C.K. recognizes quite literally, we're actually willing to pe- put other people's physical lives at stake in order to feel like we matter. So we will stop looking at the road and look down and say, someone tell me I matter. And we'll even lose our identity, become someone totally different than who we are. Because actually the only thing more important than having our identity and knowing who we are is someone else thinking we matter. That's why we'll change behavior and change who we are in order to have people or a person say we matter. And tonight our question is actually, why is Jesus the only way to connect to God? And we usually ask that question from a posture of skepticism. Because we think, well, what about other religions? How can we say it's the only one? It seems exclusive. It seems arrogant and hard to digest. How can I say? How can how can I believe in a God that says there's just one way and it's in Jesus alone? And I actually want us to think about this question from a different posture. And basically, the question is this: Is there any other way to know that you matter to God other than the story of Jesus? I don't think there's any other way you can be sure that you matter to God except for the story of Jesus. So, for the first couple of minutes, real briefly, I want to sort through why why this exclusivity of this Christ alone aspect of Christianity is troublesome to us. 
Um, and we'll just spend a few minutes here. And I think one of the first reasons is it comes across as very arrogant. And, and there are certainly people who, bearing the name of Jesus, have been very arrogant in posturing and talking about this issue. And I have a good friend that we talk about these issues. And, and this, these are his words, um, word for word. This is what James said when we were talking. And he says, the Christ event, this Jesus thing, this is how I connect to God. And I think all the other religions are ways that other people connect to the same God. And this just happens to be my way. And it's true for me, but whatever you find connects you to God is true for you. All religions are ways to connect to the same God. Therefore, we can't tell each other my religion is the right one. And that statement seems really humble on the surface, right? I'm not like the other Christians who insist on Christ alone. Christ is my thing, but everybody else should be able to pursue their religion their way, and all those are different ways of of seeking God. Therefore... We can't tell each other my religion is the right way. Seems humble. I can't tell you what's right for you. That's what he's saying. And so Christians and Muslims and Mormons and Jewish people need to take note and stop pushing their religious views on others. And that was his conclusion. But maybe you sense the internal inconsistency in this. Because what he was saying, we talked about this, he said, you shouldn't believe what you believe about God. You should believe what I believe about God. In other words, he was evangelizing for his theological views. And he was insisting upon his theological views over against mine. The, religion, the, the statement, all religions are ways to connect to God so we shouldn't push our religions on others, that's a religious statement that you're pushing on others. It's saying, and it's actually quite literally telling people, stop telling people to think your way, you need to think my way. And so, hopefully you see the internal inconsistency in it. You see that in that statement, you're actually telling people how to think. You have a point of view about religion that you're actually trying to convert people to. And so, the reality is this. what, What do we do about that? The reality is this. Everyone is an evangelist for their thought system. Everyone has a way of thinking that they think is right, and other people should think that way. That means you're human and you're thoughtful. This is a good thing. The religious pluralist, the secularist, the Mormon, the human, the humanist, whatever it is, everybody has an idea about the nature of reality. And everybody has an idea that, that maybe they've stumbled on the right one. What we need to learn how to do is, is discourse respectfully. Absolutely, that's necessary. But arguing for your point of view is the most human and interesting thing we can do. It actually what makes being human so interesting. Arrogance has to do with the way you talk about what you believe. But it has nothing to do with the fact that you believe something. So it's not arrogant. You can be an arrogant person, but having a viewpoint is not arrogant. It's only the manner in which you go about holding your viewpoint. So it's not arrogant to have a religious viewpoint. Secondly, I think sometimes we think it's culturally conditioned. Uh, You can't say that your religion is the true one because you're a product of your particular culture. I had another friend ask me, don't you think that you're mainly a Christian because your parents are? And the answer to that question is absolutely. The main reason that I'm a Christian, that I believe in Jesus, is because my parents are. And that friend of mine is an atheist. And I asked him, I said, well, what do you believe? And they said, well, I don't believe God exists. I think this material world is all there is. And I said, what did your parents teach you? They taught him that God wasn't real. And I asked him, well, aren't you an atheist? Because your parents taught you that. And it dawned on him that's true. 
So if you're going to doubt Christianity along those lines, he also has to doubt his own views in order to be consistent. And that's the posture of some uh, of people today. John Hick is this kind of late 20th century philosopher of religion in England. And he says this, the, difference, the different religions are culturally and historically conditioned responses. So just specific cultures have responded differently to what he calls an ultimate ineffable reality. Each religion is each culture's particular way of conceiving how to connect with God. And so he would say, of course, an upper middle class white guy from Alabama would believe in Jesus. That's who I am, and upper middle class white guys from Alabama almost universally believe in Jesus because that's our cultural heritage. So I think just like people like me. However, at the same time, John Hick thinks exactly like a late 20th century philosopher of religion from England. His thoughts about religion are absolutely a product of his culture, except he's actually claiming to occupy the very position he denies everybody else. He's saying, I'm, a, I'm in a place free from cultural conditioning. In other words, he's absolutely a product of his culture. So it's defeated on its own premise. You, you can't say something's wrong just because my dad taught it to me, right? Because I got it from some people that are older than me I care about that I lived with. It's not arrogant. It's not wrong because it's culturally conditioned. And then lastly, I think the other thing is it seems narrow. To say Jesus is the only way, Jesus is our only hope. Um, it can't be true if it's narrow. And the problem with this is you can't dismiss something simply because it seems narrow. And we actually don't do that in any other part of life. We don't dismiss something because we think it's narrow. We, in order to get to San Francisco, there's only one direction that will take you there, and that is north. You can't go east, and you can't go west, and you can't go south to get it there. Directions to San Francisco... <laughs> Somebody's thinking about going south. Okay. Just, Go with the illustration here, Evan. <laughs> Directions always exclude tons of other things. And actually, in every other field of inquiry that y'all are doing in college, in math and science and history, you know what good intellectual inquiry is? Excluding all the wrong theories. That's what you have to do. You have to sort through all the wrong information because truth actually, by definition, is narrow. It is the truth to the exclusion of all the wrong things. So all true knowledge is actually by definition narrow. So I recognize that those things are like troublesome to us, and, we're, and, and I want to sort through this, and we're going to talk more about uh, how actually, actually I think the beauty and the only hope we have is the exclusivity of Christ, and in fact it's the best answer um, to all the questions we have. But those, those issues of it's arrogant or it's culturally conditioned, it's narrow, are not reasons to dismiss that claim. But the claim that says connecting to God through Jesus still unnerves us, at the end of the day, we still feel like, I can't handle this. I can't handle that it's Jesus alone. God, and, and we feel like, God, you should have had a better plan than this. And it's frustrating. And I want to propose that the plan of Jesus coming, living, dying, and rising in from the dead, is actually the only plan possible. That if God is a God of love, this is the only thing he could have done. If you matter to God, the only way He could demonstrate that you matter to Him is actually in the Incarnation. Does God want the world to know His love? Absolutely. Did you know that actually when you feel, God, I wanted people to know your love, that you are actually expressing the heart of God. This is what Second Peter says, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Paul and Timothy, he, he desires all men to be saved, to come to a knowledge of truth. The Bible is full of God's sorrow over the possibility of people missing out on hope. So when you feel that feeling, 
why can't everybody know? You actually feel the heart of God. He feels that same way. And the question then is this. If God is so grieved by the possibility of people missing out on hope, why doesn't he do something about it? And what this is what we're going to spend the rest of the time talking about. The person of Jesus is the only thing he could have done. He actually does the only and the very thing a God of love would do. It's the only thing that would have worked. And the only possible way that you know you can matter to God is if the story of Jesus is true. Here's why. All throughout the New Testament, we hear echoes of what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1. He says this, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Paul in Colossians says, Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form. All throughout the New Testament, we're learning that all of who God is was embodied in this human form in this man, Jesus, this 30-year-old Jewish guy who walked around and taught. And when Jesus spoke to the disciples in John 14, he said something radical. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. He didn't say, I point you to the way, or I'm going to teach you about the truth, or I'm going to give you life. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And if you'd known me, you'd have known my Father. And he says, now you do know him and you've seen him. And what, you, what we've got to envision is he's a 30-year-old Jewish guy who lived at a time when there was no running water. And we actually need to re- recapture the grittiness of his humanity, what it was look like for them to stand in these mud houses and for Jesus to say these kind of things and how unimpressive visually and physically he was. And here he is saying... I and the Father are one. And he's talking to his 12 best friends who quit their jobs in order to follow him for three years. They're heavily invested in the things he's been talking about. And they think they're going to meet God through Jesus. And that's why Philip is frustrated by Jesus' language. And understandably, after hearing those words from a 30-year-old wandering teacher who hasn't bathed, I don't mean this to be funny, at this point in time, I am groomed better and dressed better than God ever was in His human form. That's how odd it was to hear this man say, I am the Son of God. And Philip is understandably, understandably frustrated. And he says, Jesus, will you just show us the Father? And you can understand his exasperation. And Jesus says, Philip, I've been for you a while, and you still don't get it. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. This is what that means. The way to answer the question, what is God like? The way to answer the question of what does God think about things? What does he think about us? What does he think about me? The way to see into the heart of God, and this is how God intends for you to see into his heart, is that you're not supposed to wonder about big philosophical categories and metaphysical ideas. They're too big for us and we can't handle them and they're not really helpful. What God is saying and what Jesus is saying, if you understand the heart of God, you need to look at the story of a 30-year-old Jewish man walking around and helping people. That is God. This is what it means. God weeps. When death happens. Because when you see Jesus weep, God is weeping. When you see Jesus do something crazy like welcome, forgive, and embrace prostitutes. You actually see the God of the universe who is holy and righteous. Welcome, 
forgive and embrace prostitutes. When you see Jesus get annoyed with people who think of themselves important, and when Jesus gets annoyed with those people, he goes and does children's ministry. You see God get annoyed with people who think that they're important and go and do children's ministry. God's trying to show you his heart in that. When you see Jesus take people's sandals off and wash their feet with his own hands, you see God doing that. When you see Jesus rage against religious people who make rules that exclude other people from hope and from the kingdom of God, you see God rage against those things. When you see Jesus not defend himself when he's falsely accused and then die and suffer judgment that is justly owed to his enemies, you see God keep his mouth shut when he is falsely accused and die for the judgment and the punishment that's owed to his own enemies. Several weeks ago, a bunch of the campus ministers got time with N.T. Wright when he was around, and someone asked him the question, what does God sound like? What does his voice sound like? How do you know it's God? And N.T. Wright answered it beautifully. He said, God sounds like Jesus looks. If you want to know God's voice, read the stories of Jesus. This is why John actually opens his book by saying Jesus is the Word, or the revelation, or the voice of God. And what Jesus is doing to us right here and all throughout the New Testament is saying, our conception of God is way off. He's saying, I am the truth of God. And if you want to learn about God, you have to look at my life. To understand and see the heart of God, you have to look at the life of Jesus. And that has two lessons for us. Two things that means to us. And the first one is this. The God who is incarnate, the God who is the creator of the universe and came in dirty, unbathed human form can understand you. He actually understands you. This is what it means. If you've ever been in a situation where you've had something very difficult happen in your life and you have a friend who's never experienced that kind of difficulty, maybe you've lost a parent, uh, maybe you're experiencing uh, illness, and your closest friends have not had that experience. They may very well care for you a ton, but there's this disconnect there. Because you're glad that they're willing to be there for you, and you get some comfort from their willingness to be there for you, but you know and they know they can't sympathize with you, that they don't know what you're truly going through. Right? If Jesus is the God that came and lived in this world, then He is the God of sympathy. He is the God who actually lived out the suffering that we encounter. And this is why the writer of Hebrews says this, He had to be made flesh like His brothers, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, because He Himself has suffered when tempted. Because of that, He is able to help those who are being tempted. If God had stood far off, we would have a legitimate complaint against Him. Any conception of God that doesn't allow for Him to come and be human, we'd have a legitimate complaint because we could say, but you don't know what it's like. You could legitimately say that to God. But you don't know what it's like. You can't really understand my life. But God incarnate, God in the person of Jesus, means that He is the God who intimately experienced illness, who experienced hunger, 
who experienced alienation and temptation, who experienced rejection, who experienced anger, who experienced the loss of loved ones, and who even experienced death. Apart from the incarnation, how could God ever claim that He understands us? Who more intimately knows His children? The dad that goes to work every day and pays the bill and says, I go to the works every day and I pay the bill so you know I love you. Or the father that goes to work every day who pays the bill but also gets down on the ground and plays Legos with his children. If the reality, the reality of Jesus is actually the best argument for the God of love. It means that he experientially sympathizes with his children. How could, how could we ever be attracted to any notion of God in which he only ever stood far off as this kind of disembodied wish granter? So the first lesson of the Incarnation, the first the really kind of compelling reason uh, th- that the Incarnation of Jesus is the most beautiful argument for God is that it is the only conception of God that says He can sympathize with His people. But secondly, and way more than that, is the historical reality that God came down and was incarnate in the person of Jesus and bore our sins on the cross is actually the best proof that He's a God of love. And any other conception of God leaves no hope and no evidence that God deeply cares. Any conception of God that does not involve Jesus at its center leaves no hope that God cares. Why? This is, uh, I'll propose a scenario. I shared this at at Sanctuary in the Fall. Some of y'all might have heard it. September 2006, this is what happened in our life. Uh, We were in grad school. I was a full-time student in grad school, and I was also working uh, part-time. We had two 20-month-old girls. That's in diapers, not sleeping very much. I know you all have have categories for that. Some of you all do. Someday you all will. It's chaos. Um, We had two 20-month-olds, full-time grad school, part-time work, and we had two four-and-a-half-pound preemie newborns. So that's four kids under two years, all in diapers, None sleeping through the night, 15 hours of credit in grad school, plus 20-hour a week job. And we literally are having the conversation. It's, it's kind of funny now. wasn't for a while. Uh, we were actually having the conversation of how are we going to survive and what do we need to do. And we were talking about leaving grad school, leaving seminary, moving back home, moving in with our parents until we figured out what to do, trying to figure out how to make enough money, all this kind of stuff. Now, we were sinking. This is an impossible parenting situation. Y'all think like we're resilient people. Some of y'all think that foolishly. We didn't. People took care of us. But I want, you got to understand the black hole that we were in and that this was not like we might survive. This is we're not going to survive. And something had to happen. Um, Now, into that situation, I want you to imagine three people standing at the end of our driveway. Three different type of people. And, and, and we kind of encountered these three people during that time. And the first person is really sweet. And the first person is very encouraging. And like Texas Bible verses and tells us we're going to make it. And tells us about the time that was very hard for them and how they're going to make it. And they might have even had twins before. And they, they were very well intentioned. And they just wanted to encourage us. And that's great. Tons of positive encouragement. Tons of platitudes. That's the first person. Second person. Not just affection and encouragement. They said, here's how you're going to make it. They said, here's what you need to do. 
And they gave us like great ideas for like scheduling our day and kind of learning about all the dynamics of having preemies and 20-month-olds and all that kind of stuff. And they gave us just lots of instructions. And they're totally well-intentioned people. Totally well-intentioned people. Taught us how to save money, diapers, food, all that kind of stuff, right? Helpful advice, lots of instruction. Here's the third person. This is how we survived. It's because there were several of the types of uh, the third person. The third person is this. You got one person standing at the bottom of the driveway encouraging. One person standing at the bottom of the driveway offering advice, instruction. You have a third person, and the third person walks up the driveway and takes our children from our hands, changes the diaper, says, go to sleep, and carries what we couldn't carry because we were not going to make it. Here's my question. Who truly loved us? Who actually gave us hope? Because the first person represents just pop Facebook inspiring quote religion, right? Where we just give each other and and post on Facebook just kind of encouraging words that we like to hear and they make us feel good and kind of motivate us for about seven minutes at most, right? And we love the religion of platitudes because it gives us this just tiny little boost for a minute, right? That's the religion of just kind of motivational crap. And it's stuff that we tell ourselves so that we can kind of feel like maybe we can change, right? The second person represents the religion of law. Here's what you should do to survive, right? Become the right sort of person, learn the right ways to act, the efficient ways to act, think the right way, vote the right way. And you actually see, we we lived in South Carolina for four years and now the Bay Area for three years. So we lived in the bastion of like conservative, conservative politically, philosophically, and religiously. And we also now live in the bastion of like liberal philosophy, liberal religion, liberal politics. We've lived in the kind of in the within the United States, the two hearts of the left end of the spectrum and the right end of the spectrum in philosophy, politics, and religion. And both cultures just batter you with behave, behave, behave. They're the exact same type of people. They just are on an opposite end of the spectrums, but still their primary posture in life is telling everyone, behave my way, behave my way, behave my way. Christianity is not encouragement and platitudes. And Christianity is not instruction about how to behave. Christianity is the historical account of God coming into human history and grieving our condition, grieving the world and our broken lives, broken by our sin and our self-absorption, and God saying, I will carry what you cannot carry. Don't waste your time with a religion of platitudes. Don't waste your time with a religion of law. They cannot help you. What we need is someone to come up the driveway and carry what we cannot carry. No platitude, no behavioral instruction offers any solution to sin and death. And those are our enemies. We needed somebody to come into our house and save us. And, And because my problem is in here. As many problems as I have out in the world with other people and situationally and circumstantially... Our problem fundamentally is in here. There is darkness in here that I hate, that I can't get rid of, and I know it condemns me, and death is coming for me. I need someone to come into this world and carry what I cannot carry, to take away the thing that will swallow me. If God does not walk up the driveway, what is He? 
if God does not come into this world and carry away sin and death, don't waste your time. Jesus doesn't offer platitudes and instructions. He offers to carry our burden. And that's the only thing that gives anyone hope. You see, it had to be Jesus alone. And there's no other conception of God that gives us any hope. The the most well-known scripture passage, right? John 3.16, God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. John actually gets it. We thought Jesus was actually a cause for objecting to God. Like, oh, this Jesus alone thing unnerves me. But John is saying, no, 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 it's the opposite. The main way you know God is a God of love is because of Jesus. Because He performed the supreme act of love. He walked into the driveway and He took hold of what was overwhelming us and what is killing us, our sin and our death. And He took it and He carried it because we couldn't. You cannot argue for any other conception of God that shows a deep and passionate love for humanity. There's no other conception of God in which you can say He really loves humanity unless He was willing to come into the darkness. You can't argue that God is truly sorrowful over evil unless He came into the darkness. This is why Jesus says, I am the way. The Christian doctrine of incarnation is the supreme argument for God's love. It's not an objection to it. And so the answer to the question of, do I matter to God? The only way you can answer that question is not with some, this is how we relate to God, like He's some lame, disembodied idea of what love is. There's this just kind of metaphysical, ethereal, like, grandpa who generically is kind of favorably disposed toward us. And if he and I are on really good terms, I can kind of pray up a good job or pray up a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And that's what we think God is love means. That's a waste of time. The only evidence that you know you matter to God, the only way to see and experience His love is to look at the life and the love and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. There are two ways forward. There are two paths in life. The first path is this. You walk out of this door and you walk into life, you walk in your finals, your internship and your family, and you look around at the world and you say, I want to matter. And you will lose yourself. Because you'll abandon who you are and you'll become whatever kind of person it takes for you to matter to someone else. You'll become a shell. You'll become less human. You'll no longer understand why you do what you do or even if you love what you do. All you are is someone who just meets expectations. How do I matter? Tell me how to meet your expectations. And you'll be so scared that you might be rejected that you'll never notice that the real you died a long time ago and you don't even know who you are anymore. We're all dying to matter. And you can choose that path. You can try to become someone who matters to everybody else. Change who you are. Abandon who you really are. And get the world to like you. There's another path. To look at Jesus and say, God, do I matter to you? And you see, He doesn't require that you become someone else. He becomes someone for you. In order to show you that you matter. Somebody has to change for you to matter. Either you have to change to matter to the world, or God is willing to change in order to show that you matter to Him. And so He came into this world, and He walked around as a 30-year-old Jewish guy, and He got dirty, and He got alienated, and He was tempted, and He was frustrated, and His friends didn't understand Him, and He was falsely accused, and He was killed on the cross, and He was killed on the cross. He carried the sin and the death of anybody who rests in Him. He became human and hungry and alienated and sad, and He became our sin and our death 
because his children matter to him. So which path will you choose? Let's pray.